John in the 18th chapter, and uh, the air conditioners are on, so I'm not sure why it is so hot in here, so just bear with the heat, you know. <laughs> John chapter 18. We will start uh, at verse 12 tonight in the 18th chapter. John 18, verse 12. Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without. Then went out that other disciple which was known unto the high priest and spake unto her that kept the door, and brought in Peter. Then saith the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art not thou also one of this man's disciples? He saith, I am not. And the servants and officers stood there, who made a fire of coals, for it was cold. And they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus, of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple whither the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me. What I have said unto them, behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. They said, Therefore unto him, Art not thou also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, whose ear Peter cut off, saith, Did not I see thee in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately the cock crew. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. And it was early. And they and themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring you against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. 
that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spake, signifying what death he should die. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priest have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? When he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all, but you have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will you therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers platted a crown of thorns, put it on his head. They put, him, put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, king of the Jews, and they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto, him, unto them, Behold the man. And when the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law we ought he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. And Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid. And went again into the judgment hall and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave them no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. And when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth, and sat down in the judgment seat of the place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. Let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. We ask your blessing to be upon the reading of your holy word. 
We thank you, God, for your presence. We desire to honor you tonight. We appreciate all that you have done for us. Thank you for providing salvation for us. Thank you for going through what you went through to save us. Give us understanding, Lord. Father, we ask that your will would be done in this service tonight, in and through us. We pray for the congregation. The congregation would be ready to hear and receive your word tonight. Help us to deliver it, O oh God. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The title of the message tonight, The Drama of Redemption, The Trials of Jesus. The Drama of Redemption, The Trials of Jesus. There were two trials, one trial before the Jews, another trial before the Romans, a trial before government, a trial before religion. Within those two trials of religion and government and the Jews and Rome, there are six parts. Three parts in relation to the religious trial and three parts in relation to the civil trial. And so we come to the very beginning of that when the Bible says in verse 12 that the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first. And then the Bible says from there to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Annas, according to Josephus, was a high priest over Jerusalem between the year 6 A.D., and 14 A.D. So it's been approximately 20 years since Annas was the high priest over Israel. That is very unusual because according to the scripture, the high priest was to be in that office until he died. So for whatever reason, Annas has been replaced by Caiaphas, his son-in-law to be the high priest, probably because of uh, Roman influence. The Romans liked Caiaphas. They did not like Annas. And so because of that, Caiaphas was put there as high priest, as a puppet to the Romans. Um, but Annas, the elder man, still yielded power. In fact, because of his position originally as high priest, through the scripture, he is often called the high priest. Uh, he's more like a high priest emeritus, which means like a high priest in retirement. <clears throat> he has great power. He is the brains behind the death of Jesus, Annas. Uh, Annas, again, reigned from 6 to 14 A.D., Following that time frame, 20 years, five of his sons followed his footsteps in the priesthood. 
Therefore he held on to the power of the priesthood. After his five sons, then his son-in-law Caiaphas took the position of the high priest. And so we see here in verse 13 that the first person that they take Jesus to is Annas. And the scripture tells us in other places, in the other gospels, that he was considered high priest. But Caiaphas is really the, the uh, ultimate high priest in, in the text. Now, as I said, Annas is the first one that Jesus is brought to. And so Jesus is going to be tried first by Annas. He's going to be questioned by Annas. He's going to be interrogated by Annas, the, the high priest or the former high priest. And uh, before I get into the text itself, I will tell you a little bit about the process of judging. Now, it's a very elaborate process, but they would have brought the criminal before a council of elders. Now, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that this would take place with Caiaphas, that the elders were there and the scribes were there when Jesus is taken from Annas over to Caiaphas' house. Uh, but to give you a little understanding of what is going to happen is that when the criminal or the accused criminal would be taken to the high priest's house, he would first go and stand before five elders. They, at that point, would try to force a plea from the person. If they could not force a plea from the person, then they would go through a process with that person of taking him and standing him before other people. But ultimately, he would be taken, he would be uh, positioned before the high priest. And the high priest would go and he would get the Urim and the Thummim. How many of y'all are familiar with the Urim and Thummim? in the Old Testament, lights and perfections. This is the way the high priest determined the will of God through the stones of the Urim and the Thummim. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on how he went through that process of determining the will of God, but he could tell what the will of God is by looking at the stones. And so he would go in, he would bring those, th those stones out of the temple, and he would place those stones of the Urim and Thummim in front of the judgment seat. And then he would walk behind a black veil with his back to the accused. And that symbolized that it was to be an impartial uh, judgment. So he was not going to be looking at the person. There's a veil that's separating him from the accused. So he can't see the accused and the accused cannot see him. But he has his back to the accused. Impartial judgment is what that means. All right, y'all with me so far? And in that process, he would send a couple of witnesses out from his presence. They were called lactes. And I'm not getting a lot of detail on that, but one stood at the door with a red flag. The other man, which would be on a horse, a white horse, on the road that led to Gehenna, the place of execution. And in the process of the high priest coming to a determination as to whether or not the accused was guilty or not, the man at the door with the red flag, 
man on the white horse on the road that led to Gehenna, the place of execution, would begin to cry out and scream out for anybody to be a witness on the behalf of the accused. Are you with me so far? And they would do that for one to seven days. It was up to the discretion of the high priest how long those two men would cry out for witnesses to witness on the behalf of the accused. Okay? Are y'all with me now? To make a long story short, when it came time for the decision to be made, the Sanhedrin court, a total of 71 with the high priest, 24 chief priests, 23 elders, 23 scribes, and the high priest. They would vote or cast a lot as to whether or not they believed that the accused was guilty. Okay? Are y'all with me so far? Now, they would start at the youngest member of the Sanhedrin, the great Sanhedrin, okay? And that youngest member, he would remember, he would cast his vote. And then the next youngest member would cast his vote all the way up to the oldest member so as not to be influenced, the youngers being influenced by the elders' decisions. So it was a very elaborate process that they went through, okay? Now, if there happened to be somebody that would testify on the behalf of the accused, then they would come in and they would share testimony on the behalf of the accused and they would appeal that uh, accusation for one year. And that trial would take place one year later if there were witnesses on the behalf of the accused. Okay? If not, then they voted, as I said, they voted, they went through that process of voting and determined if the man was guilty. If they believed that he was guilty, then they would send for the Roman officials, or they would send the accused to the Roman officials to get the permission from Rome to execute or to kill the man. They could not do this on their own. They could pass the verdict. They could say he's worthy of death, but they could not execute the sentence of death without the Roman government's approval. They didn't have that authority, all right? Now, this whole process, this elaborate process of jurisprudence, there was no gray areas in the Jewish court. They went through that process meticulously along with other steps. Um, <clears throat> are y'all with me so far? There was no gray area. And in the Roman jurisprudence, there was no gray area. There was procedures that had to be followed. But when we come to Jesus going before the high priest and the elders, etc., none of that process was followed. Okay? And even the, the jurisprudence of the Roman government was not followed by Pilate himself. It is the biggest sham, the biggest scam in world history. Okay? All right, you keep that in mind. Now look at the verse. The Bible tells us they led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, so John tells us something the other writers do not tell us. 
You with me? Tells us that they took him to Annas, and then from there they took him to Caiaphas. Caiaphas here, he says, he's the high priest. Now, they did this at night. It was late at night. It was beyond midnight. Are you with me? So not only was that process of Jewish-Jewish prudence with the high priest and the Sanhedrin court, the Supreme Court of Israel, those procedures were not followed in the trial of Jesus. But also, according to the Jewish Talmud, which was the legal document or the law code for Israel, in the law code of the Talmud, it says that a trial could not take place at night. And so when they brought Jesus, it's after 12 midnight when they bring him to Annas and he's interrogated by Annas and then they take him to Caiaphas and the elders and scribes are there with Caiaphas. This is all taking place at night. It's an illegal trial according to their own law codes. Okay? Y'all with me tonight? Okay, say praise the Lord. Also, you will see that there is no witnesses for his behalf. That was something that the Sanhedrin court had to provide for the accused was witnesses, number one, against him, but they couldn't come up with them. They couldn't go out there and try to find the witnesses against them, the person that would make them prosecuting attorneys instead of a court that's impartial. You with me? So they're breaking laws here. They're, they're trying him at night. They are soliciting witnesses against him, illegal. There is no witnesses sought on his behalf, illegal. Okay, y'all with me so far? You catch what's going on here? Say praise the Lord. They are going to interrogate him and then they're going to pass a verdict on Jesus Christ that same night that he's guilty of blasphemy. That also broke their law code because there had to be a one-day period of time where they fasted and prayed and got plenty of sleep before they passed a verdict down. So in the process of, of trying Jesus, okay, we go Annas first, then we go Caiaphas, elders and scribes at night, and then Luke says... Early the next morning, he's brought before Caius and the elders again in the daytime. Three appearances of Jesus before the religious leaders in trial. They broke the law. They didn't fast. They didn't pray. They didn't rest on it. They passed an accusation against him. Now, let's look in the Word of God tonight. Let's go to Deuteronomy in the Old Testament law. In the 16th chapter, this is what the Lord says in verse 18. It's Deuteronomy 16, 18. Judges and officers shalt thou make thee in all thy gates which the Lord thy God giveth thee throughout thy tribes, and they shall judge the people with just 
judgment. Okay? So it was to be an impartial judgment that should have taken place for Jesus Christ. Now the Sanhedrin court finds its basis. Go to Numbers chapter 11. Verse 16, Numbers eleven sixteen, we have the basis of the Sanhedrin here. And the Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people, and officers over them, and bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. So this is the basis of the Sanhedrin court. We have seventy elders plus Moses equals 71, okay? In the days of Jesus, the Sanhedrin court, 24 chief priests, 23 elders, and 23 scribes, plus the high priest, 71 total men on the Supreme Court of Israel. It's rooted in Numbers chapter 11, verse 16. Now, the great Sanhedrin did not start until after the Babylonian captivity, but that's the basis for the Sanhedrin court. Okay, so there's supposed to be a just judgment. The Sanhedrin court is rooted in the days of Moses when 70 elders were chosen uh, along with Moses make, he making uh, 71. Now go to Deuteronomy 19 and verse 16. Now here's the consequence for false witnesses. Deuteronomy 19, verse 16. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witness be false witness and hath testified falsely against his brother, then shall you do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother, so shalt thou put away the evil from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear, and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And thine eyes shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Okay? So in the law, Deuteronomy 19, it tells us if there is a false witness... If they witness against that brother, he's a false witness. Whatever that brother is accused of, if a false witness be found to be a liar, he is punished with the same punishment. Okay? So this was the way God looked at, at false witnesses, somebody that lied against somebody else. He said, all right, if you're a liar and a false witness, then you're going to bear the punishment of the, per the same punishment Okay, that, that person would have experienced. If you lied on them, then you would experience that punishment. Okay, so if the person you lied on was convicted and sentenced to death, if it was found that you were the liar in the case, they would take you and kill you. 
So you see how serious God looks at false witnesses. Now, I could go off and I could preach on that a long time. But I will tell you this, that if you ever testify or say something against a brother in the church, you better be absolutely sure you're right. And you better not be lying. Because what's going to happen is what you wish to come on them is going to ultimately come on you. So it's a very serious thing. So we're going to see false witnesses brought to testify against Jesus Christ. According to the law, they should have been the ones to be hanging on the tree. Crucified. Okay, y'all with me so far? All right. Now, as we get into this, who was guilty of crucifying Jesus or killing Jesus? Who's guilty? You think the Jews are guilty as a whole, the nation? Still today, the nation of Israel guilty? How can you blame the guilt on the nation of Israel for something that some that their leaders did close to 2,000 years ago? That'd be like blaming your family for something that somebody did in your family years ago. And, okay. <clears throat> the blaming of the Jews for the death of Jesus Christ as a nation is the roots of anti-Semitism and it is the roots of the Holocaust. Hitler and the Germans justified the Holocaust by saying it was the Jewish nation that crucified Jesus. The Jewish nation wasn't guilty of crucifying Jesus. Their religious leaders were Annas and Caiaphas and, and people like that were, but not the nation. Let's see what the Bible says. In Acts chapter 4, in verse 27. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod, Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together. It wasn't just the Jewish nation is guilty of the death of Jesus. It was Herod, it was Pontius Pilate, it was the Gentiles, amen. The people of Israel, we're talking about the leaders of Israel. It wasn't the whole nation. The whole nation wasn't guilty of killing Jesus. As I said, that was the roots of the Holocaust. That gave them the basis for killing the Jews. Because they, they said they killed the Christ of God. Let me just tell you this. We're all guilty because his death on the cross. Now, I'm not saying directly, but indirectly because of our sin. Does that make sense? Was it a good thing that Jesus was crucified on the cross? Or was it an evil thing? Look at Acts uh, 2, please, 23. And then I'll go from there and I'll go to uh, Isaiah 53 and verse 10. And I will show you also it wasn't just Pontius Pilate, um, Herod, Gentiles, and people of Israel that were guilty or, or, or were you know, the only ones that crucified Jesus or had him killed. 
In Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So was it a good thing or a bad thing? Okay, let's go to uh, Isaiah 53 and verse 10. I've got to give you some foundation here. Biblical foundation. In Isaiah 53 and verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. So now we find out that it was God that bruised him. How could God be pleased at the death of his son? Was, he, was God glad that Jesus was crucified so brutally? Was God happy? Was he pleased with the crucifixion of Jesus? No. What was he pleased with? The results of the crucifixion, which was your and my salvation. That's what he was pleased about. He was not pleased with the brutality, the criminality, the cruelty, okay, the evil that man perpetrated against the, the Christ of God. He was not pleased with that. They said, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. So the Lord was behind his death. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So now we find out it's not just Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel that were involved with it. Now we find out that God was behind the death of the Son. And he was pleased with that. As I said, not the brutality of it, but what it provided. Now go to Zechariah 13. Zechariah 13 and verse 7. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn my hand upon the little ones. So now there we find that the sword, okay, says against who? My shepherd. So God is calling for the sword against his shepherd and against the man that is my companion or fellow. One translation, my equal. So that Jesus, when he's dying on the cross, we have this passage that declares to us that he's equal with God. So that it's not just a man that's being crucified, but it's a, a man who is God. The creator of life is being killed in sonship, in humanity. Okay? And he's equal with God. He's his companion, his fellow, or his equal. And it is the Lord who is smiting the shepherd with the sword. You see that? Okay. So when we go over here then, and we see the injustice, the crime, criminality, 
evil that takes place here in these trials than ultimately in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Even though God is going to bring something good out of that, the people that kill Jesus are still guilty of the death, are guilty of the crime. You see that? God in his sovereignty and God in his, his power, he's behind the events, he's in control of the events, okay? But these men that are brutally killing Jesus are guilty of the crime. All right? It's just that God, Acts 2 says, it was by evil hands. These were evil things that were done to Jesus. The, the abuse of the trial, the lying, the, the breaking of the law by the Jews and by uh, the Romans. This was an evil, sinister conspiracy against the Christ of God. Against somebody who is absolutely not guilty of any crime. And there was no accusation worthy of death in his trial. He wasn't guilty of anything. He's completely innocent. So everything that takes place is done by conspiracy and plotting and the evil hands of men. It's just in the foreknowledge of God God is going to use that to provide salvation for you and I. But when they're doing this, they don't know that. You catch what I'm saying? When they're, when they're uh, going to send him through these trials and break the law and plot and can have a conspiracy against him, they don't know that by his death on the cross, salvation is going to come to the world. They are brutal. They are evil. Okay? They plotted his death. The um, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin of Court Annas, have plotted his death from way back. We've already seen it in the Gospel of John. They wanted to kill him before, but it wasn't time. And then they try to suspend the time of his death beyond Passover. God is in control of the time. So, you know, and things are going to ha start happening so fast that they won't have a choice but to fulfill the will of God. So even though it's the will of God, they're still evil. And they're conspirators and plotters and liars and corrupt and murderers. You understand? But I'm trying to help you see tonight that, number one, who was guilty of his death? And I'm trying to get you to see as well that man, what he did was an evil thing. But God just stepped in and he brought good out of it. He brought salvation out of it. Okay? Right. Now I've got so much going on in my mind right now. I ask you to pray. Because I'm trying to teach you the greatest event in world history. I'm trying to convey to you the greatest event in world history. And, and I'm asking you to pray for me. Okay? Right. To get this burden off of me. Amen. So now we see that Jesus is taken by wicked hands and he goes to Annas and other, other places, other gospel writings will tell you that Annas interrogates Jesus. Okay? And uh, it's a very interesting uh, thing that takes place. But we'll see it in this chapter as well. So let me read down here just a little bit. 
Okay, you with me still? Okay, let me just read it. Let me just take it a step at a time. Here we go. So they led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. So we've got some background here, right? Okay. Caiaphas had made the statement, it's expedient that one man should die for the people, not with the thought that Jesus' death would save man. In his mind, he's plotting the death of Jesus in order to avoid a revolution or a riot in the, in the land of Israel. Okay? But he doesn't realize that when he says that it's expedient for one man to die for the people, he doesn't realize that God was using him to prophesy the salvation of the world so that God can use the devil if he wants to. At all. See, just because somebody, somebody can say something about God or you know, prophesy doesn't mean they're of God. He's a devil. And Caiaphas is a devil, right? So, anyway, the Bible tells us now we, there's a drama going on here, all right? We have Jesus and we have Peter. We see the strength of Jesus and the weakness of Peter at the same time, okay? So now we're going to jump. Okay, we've got we've got the trial of Jesus, Annas, right? Then to Caiaphas. Now keep in mind that Annas and Caiaphas, their palaces were adjacent to each other, and there's a court in between those two palaces. So when we shift to Simon Peter, he's in that court area in between Annas and Caiaphas's palaces. Now, the Bible says in verse 15, so let's talk about Peter here. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now, who that disciple is, nobody knows. The other gospel writers don't tell us who this, this disciple is. It just says that Peter is following Jesus and another disciple. Now, it's possible that it is John. Okay. It is also possible that it's Nicodemus because the Bible says he was known by the high priest. Now, Nicodemus was a disciple of Jesus in secret. You with me? So I'm just telling you that when Peter goes over here, uh, he's going to spend some time in the court. There's another disciple. That disciple was known to the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. You with me so far? Now, I don't know who that disciple is, but I really believe it was John. It's my opinion, but I believe it was John, okay? Because other uh, references in the Gospel of John, when he talks about himself, he talks about that other disciple. And so I think it was John, possibly Nicodemus, but nobody knows for sure. All we know is whoever this disciple of Jesus was, he's nameless here, but he's known by the high priest. And the scripture says they went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without. So Peter's standing out there in the courtyard. Right? Now, 
Then went out that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door, and brought in Peter. All right, so evidently the disciple who's gone in, he starts thinking, what happened to Peter? And I better go check on Peter. So he goes over there and he talks to the, the, the maiden, the porter of the door, and says, so let Peter come on in here, you know. And, uh, praise the Lord. <laughs> That's what happened. Peter stood at the door without, then went out that other disciple, which was known to the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door, and brought in Peter. Then sat the damsel that kept the door unto Peter. Art not thou also one of this man's disciples? Now remember, Jesus had already told him, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me thrice. Amen. Well, so there's already a prophecy hanging over Peter's head that he's going to fail Jesus, correct? So he's there in the court, and this uh, this damsel, you know, he comes under some influence. I don't know, you know, some people speculate that, you know, see, we think she might have been a little girl, but she might have been an older girl. And maybe Peter is a little bit nervous, you know. Just, I don't know, maybe she got the best of him. And he just... He just denies the Lord. Now, think about that. There is no reason for him to deny Jesus. Is that girl a threat to him? Huh? In the garden, he had already taken his sword and cut off the earlobe of, the, of Malchus, right? Jesus said, rebuke him, put up your sword. And he slides the sword back in his I think Peter was feeling that hurt a little bit. He was trying to do a good thing for Jesus and and try to cut that guy's head off and, you know, rescue the tree of life. And it didn't work out the way he thought it. Well, Jesus put the ear back on and said, put your sheep up. And that probably hurt Peter's feelings. It probably embarrassed him. So maybe Peter's carrying just a little bit of resentment in him because Jesus told him to put up his, sheep, or his sword in the sheep and didn't commend him for trying to protect him. Maybe that's what's going on in Peter. Maybe a little resentment okay, toward Jesus. And so now, when he's asked, uh, you, are you one of the disciples? No. I am not. In contrast to Jesus saying, I am. Peter says, I am not. See, there's a drama here. Peter and Jesus. Jesus' deity and his humanity, his weakness. He said, I am not. And again, what threat is a young woman to Peter? There's no threat. There's absolutely no reason for him to deny Jesus. But there's, I'm telling you what I believe. There's some kind of resentment going on in Jesus Christ. I mean, in Peter court, Jesus Christ from the earlier events. Okay? I don't say you have to believe it. I'm just asking you to hear it. Then saith the damsel that kept the door to Peter, Art thou not also one of this man's disciples? He said, I am not. And the servants and officers stood there. Now these are the servants of the high priest, Caiaphas. The servants, the officers stood there who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold. And that's very unusual for that time of year for it to be cold. We're talking about April. In the Middle East. Okay. Unusual for it to be cold. Maybe 
it is a picture of what's going on in Peter, his coldness. But nonetheless, it was literally cold. The Bible says there's a, uh, these servants and officers standing there making a fire of coals for his cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Are y'all here? See, what's happening, he's running with the wrong crowd. The Bible says in Psalm 1, 1, Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. And if you study Peter and the rest of the Gospels, he does every one of them. He walks with them, he stands with them, and he sits with them. See, if you walk, Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of scornful. If you walk with him, stand with him, and sit with him, you will deny him. So you and I have to be very, very careful about who we walk with, stand with, and we sit with, and who we warm ourselves with. See, there's a lot of people, for example, they may throw practical application in this as I go. They may go to another city. There's no church there. No Jesus name, one God church. But they'll go to some other church in order to just get a little warmth. No, the best thing for you to do is to start your own church if there's no church there. Because if you go stand with, if you walk with them, stand with them, and sit with them, ultimately, you're going to deny the truth that you have. So there is no real, real threat to Peter. There's no real threat to Peter from the damsel. There's no real threat to Peter from, uh, from the servants of the high priest or the officers of the high priest. There's no threat to him. You understand? But he's going to deny the Lord three times before the cock crows. Is that cock a rooster? Is that a poultry? Like we have in West Texas? How many of y'all have chickens? A chicken poultry, a chicken and rooster? No, um, this is not a chicken coop. Okay? And that day, Jesus' day, they didn't have chickens, rooster, poultry. Okay? So, <clears throat> Peter's going to deny the Lord three times before the cock crows, and so I've got to explain to you the cock crowing. All right? There was, uh, in that culture, peacocks. Peacocks. A peacock is a cock. And peacocks were trained. After sunset, all the way from sunset to, uh, sunset to sunrise, peacocks were trained to crow every two hours. They would let you know through the night what time it was, okay? So if you knew what time it was when the sun set, every two hours thereafter, you could say, okay, 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 6 o'clock. Got it? All the way through the night, the peacock was trained to sound every two hours. Amen? And not only that, but they were also known as the fowl of conscience because they were... Good burglar alarms. 
they were allowed to run free through the houses of the people. And if some unfamiliar person went into that house, that peacock, the fowl of conscience, would start screaming and screeching through the house and, and letting the owners know that somebody's broke in. They were a great burglar. So the cock that he's talking about crowing wasn't a rooster of the poultry family. It was probably a peacock, but I've got something better than that. There were four watches the night. Okay? Six to nine, the evening watch. Six to nine, the evening watch. Nine to twelve, the midnight watch. And from twelve to three was known as the watch of the cock crowing. And then from three to six was known as the morning watch. So when Jesus said, what we're talking about is that in every one of those watches, six to nine, the evening, nine to twelve, the midnight, twelve to three, the cock coin watch, three to six, the morning watch. Every time there was a change of the guard of the watch, there was a sounding of the trumpets. And the guard sounded and let everybody know it's time for you to change the guard. And... <clears throat> 12 to 3 was the cock crowing watch. And at the end of 3 o'clock, when they sounded those trumpets, that was the sounding of the cock crow. It was letting you, know, letting you know there was a changing of the guard from the 12 to 3, which was the cock crowing watch, to 3 to 6, the morning watch. I'm trying to bring some clarity to you, some understanding for you tonight as to what it was. It wasn't a rooster like you think that you wake up in the morning, some of you here outside my window. It wasn't cock-a-doodle-doo. <laughs> so just as Jesus prophesied and told Peter he's going to deny, that he would deny him three times, Peter denies the Lord. And it'll be three times. Say three times. And the other gospel writer says that when he <clears throat> denies Jesus, one of his denials, he curses. It doesn't mean that he used cuss words. You read the gospel and he said, Peter cursed. It means he's calling a curse of God down upon his head. He's asking God to stand behind his lying. See, he has to lie right here. Every time he denies Jesus Christ, now it doesn't say right here that he cursed, it's in the other writings. But you see, every time he lies, you can't unring a bell. So if, you, if Peter lies here, he's got to lie again to cover up the first lie, and then the next time he's got to cover up the second lie, he said, because you can't unring a bell. Once you ring the bell, you have rung the bell. And Peter had rung the bell when he denied the Lord the first time. So after that, he's, got to, he's just got to keep covering up the lie with another lie, with another lie. Lincoln said there's no, no human being uh, that is capable of lying. 
You know why you're not capable of lying? Because you can't remember the lie you told. Peter is flat lying when he says, I don't know him. Not his disciple, right? He calls, listen, I want you to think about this. And he cusses and he, he not cusses, curses. He calls a curse of God on his head. If what he is saying is not the truth, he's asking God to curse him. Therefore, he's asking God to back him up in his lie. When he gets through denying Jesus and calling a curse down on his head, you can imagine how he must have felt that it would be impossible for him to be ever reconciled to a relationship with Jesus ever again. I want you to keep that in mind. Now, go back, think in John 17, when Jesus said, not one of them is lost except the son of perdition. He didn't say the son of perdition and Peter would be lost. He said the only one that would be lost would be Judas, the son of perdition. Whoa. Which lets you know that Jesus knew that Peter would repent of denying the Lord and lying on, on lying about it, that Peter would repent of that and be restored. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that Peter loved him. You hear me? See, when you really love somebody, you love someone. And Peter is going to fail, yes. His weakness is on display here. He hasn't prayed like he should. He slept when he should have prayed. He slept too much. He followed Jesus from a far a distance. I could go through it. I don't have time to preach Peter to you, but I could go through step by step and show you how Peter failed the Lord. Just a few of those. He didn't pray enough. He slept too much. And he boasted. Though all forsake you, not me. He boasted. And he found out ultimately when God restores him that he didn't have the ability to keep himself. He was kept by Jesus. None of them was lost except Judas, the son of perdition. If Peter was saved, it's because Jesus kept Peter. And then if you go to 1 Peter chapter 1, the Bible tells Peter speaking to the persecuted church in his day. He said, you are kept by the power of God. So he, see, he learned when you go through life and you think you're keeping yourself. He learned a real valuable lesson that he didn't keep himself, that Jesus kept him. And you and I need to learn a real valuable lesson because in, in case you think that uh, you would never be capable of denying Jesus, you can boast and you can brag about how faithful you're going to be. But in a time of weakness, of prayerlessness, you're sleeping too much when you should be praying, you're boasting about how faithful you are going to be to God, and that human weakness, when you think you're keeping yourself, the enemy will come and hit you 
with something little. He comes with a little damsel. The devil, with a little damsel, boom, hits him. Just side slides him. Just knocks him off track, you know. So on one hand, Peter, yeah, he can handle the big things. He can take a sword and cut the ear off of a, of a you know, servant of the high priest. He's ready to go to war with the 600 men. He can handle the big things. But then he denies in the presence of a little thing. You see, if you're not careful when you're going through life, you say, oh yeah, I can do the big things, you know. And we talk about, well, I'm going to do something big for God. And then the devil comes over there and just slaps you down with some little old thing. And you say, whoa, I didn't think I would go for that. I didn't think I'd ever do that. I didn't think that would ever happen to me. Uh, some little old thing. And boom, the devil just hits you right upside the head. So while you were focused on the big thing you were going to do, the devil sidetracked you with a little damsel or a young damsel. That's the way it is. It's the way it is for me. I know I'm preaching to angels tonight. But that's the way it is for me. I can always think about, oh, that's some big thing I'm going to do for God. And then here comes the devil and just slaps me down with some little old thing, some little old sin. I thought I'd ne- I would never do that. Yeah, right, right, right. So as you how weak you are and how vulnerable you are in any given situation. So, before any of us start walking around real cocky and prideful in this church, and that goes for me as well, we need to remember that it's not really you that's keeping yours. Now, yeah, I know the Bible says keep yourself in the love of God, so there is some effort required. But ultimately, it's God's keeping power. The reason I'm here tonight is because God kept me. And I really think God goes weary with some of the self-righteousness that's in us. You understand what I'm trying to say? And that's the way the devil always comes at you, man. He just comes with some little thing. You can handle the big thing. No problem. He's not going to throw that at you. He's going to come with some little fox and just knock you over. Y'all all right? Say amen every once in a while. It helps me. It helps me. Good, 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 good. Yeah. Jolene says, preach it. Bloss says. So, you know, you, you can imagine how he must have felt. Calling the curse of God on his head. God, curse me. If we... Let God curse me if what I'm saying is not the truth. Now he's got these curse of God on his own head, man. He's asking God to stand behind his lie. He's just like Jesus said. He would deny him three times before the cock crowed. You with me? That's exactly what happened before three o'clock. Before the changing of the guard at three o'clock, the cock crowing watch, he had already denied the Lord three times. In the presence of people that couldn't hurt him anyway. He could face an army that could kill him in a heartbeat. Was little, you know, a woman. And servants, household servants of Caiaphas and Annas. What are they going to do to the guy? Nothing. Little things. It's the little foxes that spoil the vines. Praise the Lord. 
Boom. You get hit by it and go, whoa, man, I didn't think I'd ever do that. You know? And I was, always, I was talking about, you know, you know, talking real big, you know, real big. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Before the week was over, you was doing it. You know it's true. I'll just let you go home and let you think about that. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to leave the United States of America. I'm going to go over here and I'll be a powerful missionary for God. And, and a little kid walks out in the front yard and wants to talk about the Lord. And you say, I don't know the Lord, kid. You get all shy and all bashful and can't even talk to a little kid about the Lord. And you're going to be a powerful missionary to China. You know what I'm talking about. The devil just slaps us. He slaps us around with little things, man. We do big things, you know. Yeah. Yeah, we, we can give big offerings to the Lord and steal a pencil from school. Didn't belong to you. Little pencil, you know. But you brought your big offering and tithe to the Lord? You know what I'm just saying. You know. Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scorn. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And Peter's going to fail in those three areas. Walking with them, standing with them, and sitting with them. And ultimately, it causes him to fall. So that's why you have to be real careful. You know, you can talk about how what big things you're going to do for the Lord. You start hanging around the wrong kind of people. I don't care if they're family or not. You'll find yourself falling, denying. Okay, say amen. Okay, now we're going to switch back now to Jesus because there's a drama going on here. The weakness of Peter, the weakness of man, man's lack of loyalty. See, man, yeah, I'm loyal to the end, lack of loyalty. The weakness of man, lack of loyalty, human, you know, but at the same time strong. Following Jesus all the way to the door of the high priest. Boy, Peter's saying, I love you, Lord. I'm going to say it again. When you really love, you really love. And even though Peter is denying the Lord and he's, he's weak here, he's showing the frailty of humanity, He's also in love with Jesus. He loves him. His love won't let him go. Say amen. So now we're going to, now John changes the drama. And he goes back to Jesus. 
The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Now, amen. What is he trying to do? There are no witnesses here. Okay? They're trying him at night illegally. No witnesses illegal. Now they're going to try to coax out of Jesus a testimony against himself. He's going to try to get something out of Jesus that he can use against Jesus. You with me tonight? So the high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him. Watch this. I want you to see this powerful. He knows what this man's up to. He knows that this man has already plotted and planned his death. Okay? And he knows this man's trying to trick him into testifying against himself. So his response is, where are all the witnesses that heard me openly? Why didn't you, why aren't there witnesses here right now? Basically, if you're going to try this thing, then do it legally. And when he said, watch this, I'm going to show it to you. When he says that, he put, see, they're trying to convict Jesus. Jesus is fixing to convict him. See, that through this whole process, Jesus is not the victim. Jesus is the victor. This whole process. Okay. All right, so what, what happens? The Bible says Jesus responds. Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. I, he, see, he's not trying to start another kingdom opposing Rome. He's not trying to start a secret religion. He's out there doing it open. He's speaking openly and publicly in the temples, in the synagogues. Why are you asking me? Go ask the ones that I've been preaching to openly. You understand? Where's the witnesses against me? Or for me? Verse 21. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. <laughs> he just put that priest, that high priest, under conviction and let him know you should have brought witnesses against me. Where are they? He just uncovered the illegal process of the high priest. You understand what I'm telling you? And when he does, there's an officer standing beside him and reaches over and slaps him on the head with a rod. John says he did it with the palm of his hand, but it should be translated with a rod. Look at Micah chapter 5 and verse 1. 
Somebody get it for me. That officer of the high priest slaps him in the head with the rod. Basically, who are you to teach the high priest jurisprudence? Who are you to tell the high priest how to run a trial? Who do you think you are? Michael will tell you he's the true judge. Anybody get it? Read it, please. Now gather thyself in truths, O daughter of truths. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge, the judge of Israel upon the cheek. With what? With a rod. So look at the next verse. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of the hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest's soul? Should be translated rod in fulfillment of Micah 5 and 1. That officer smote the true judge of Israel on the cheek with the rod. Let me tell you something. This whole thing is illegal. There's no witnesses there on his behalf or speaking against him. They're trying to take uh, 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 his own confession, something to use against him, and then they hit him in the process. Total out of order. No, he says, who are you? You know, the implication is, who are you to tell the high priest how to run his court? You, you, do you hear what he's saying? You see what, the reason why Jesus responded like he did about witnesses coming, where are they? He's exposing and convicting the error of the high priest in the process of jurisprudence. It's not just. It's an unjust trial. It's illegal. It's at night. There's no witnesses. That's illegal. And Jesus is uncovering him. That high priest is sitting there embarrassed as he can possibly be. He's under conviction trying to convict. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with a palm of the hand, saying, Answer, step by high priest. So Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Look at the strength of Jesus. It Acts 23, 1 for me. The strength of Jesus. See, John is presenting him as deity. And see, the weakness of Peter, but the strength of Jesus. True drama is here. What would you do if somebody was illegally trying you, trying to get a confession out of you, no witnesses there breaking the law that way for or against you? Amen. And it's the high priest and the Sanhedrin that's going to bring the accusation against Jesus and not another witness? That's against the law. They can't do that. And they're going to go out there and find false witnesses. They can't do that. That's against the law. They have to provide true witnesses. Okay. So when, when that officer hits Jesus in the face, look at the calmness of Jesus. 
majesty and humility at the same time. How many of you could do that? If you were going through, if you were being falsely accused and it was a, a kangaroo jury, you know, and uh, they've already got the plan. They've already plotted your death. It's it's already it's an arranged trial, man. Okay, and and uh, you simply point out the fact that there should be witnesses here against me. I would testify against uh, myself, brother Michael. Where are you? Y'all still do that? What do they call that? Rights, Randa. Y'all still do that? Doesn't it say that you, you don't have to testify against yourself? If you do, if you say something that can and will be used against you in a court of law, right? All right? Who do you think they got that? Say amen. So I'm asking you, what would you do if they were treating you like that? And, and then you say basically, well, Where's the witnesses against me? And they tell me, smash in there. Preacher, they just knock the tire out of you, man. What would you do? I know what Jerry Kennedy would do. He'd be on that boy. You wouldn't even see the boy. And so would Pastor Carter, probably. <laughs> okay, be honest with you, you know. What? It's on. But Jesus, majestic humility, standing there in complete control. Even an apostle like Paul, read. Watch this. This high priest commands those by Paul to smite Paul. And watch what Paul does. He's a man. Watch. Look at his response. Listen. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. He said, you're nothing but mud. And polished mud at that. God's going to smite you. Even the apostle. He didn't have what Jesus had. He had the Spirit of God in him. But when Jesus was smitten, look at him calmly. The way he handles the situation. The strength of Jesus. The majesty of Jesus. He's more than a man. In contrast to Peter's weakness. And Paul, you're a whited wall. I mean, whited sepulcher could mean you're full, you're just a dead man. You're full of dead men's bones. You understand? Even Paul, human being, did not respond the way Jesus did. And then he has to go ahead and finish reading the story about Paul. Smitten contrary to the law. Read. I didn't know. That's funny to me. 
on in the world, Paul, I didn't know he was a high priest. It's all sarcasm. He knew the guy was a high priest, man. I mean, come on. You know? High priest don't act like that. I wish not that he was a high priest. He's an apostle. Amen. The strength of Jesus. What would you do? Now you have to keep in mind that at this point, now what you need to realize is that this is going, in, this is taking place in front of Annas. Annas. Say Annas. He's called high priest in the passage. This is taking place before Annas. And when he gets through with Jesus, he's trying to interrogate him, trying to get Jesus to, uh, yeah, testify against himself. When and after the guy hits Jesus, Jesus stands there and communicates to him. You know, uh, we'll read what Jesus said after Jesus gets through talking. Annas just has enough; he can't do anything with Jesus. He sends him to Caiaphas. Verse 23, Jesus answered him. And he's not looking at the officer. He's not looking at the one that smote him. He's looking at Annas. Jesus answered, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. Three witnesses. But if well, why smitest thou me? He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't smite back. He doesn't defend himself. You understand? He's saying, bring the witnesses. He's not irreverent. The majesty and humility of Jesus. You see that? And then the whole, everything he's done, he's thrown the conviction back onto Annas. Did I say, if I said Caiaphas earlier, on Annas, okay, he hadn't gone to Caiaphas yet. He's all in Annas' palace. He's just got this guy's under conviction. Say Annas. Okay. Now, here we go. Verse 24. Now, Annas had sent him bound in the Caiaphas, the high priest. Say amen. Be honest with you, it gets a little bit complicated for me. I don't know if this is before Annas or before Caiaphas is saying, you know, that this is taking place. But anyway, it's before the high priest, all right? Hallelujah. Which one of one it was? But anyway, Annas sends him then to Caiaphas and the gospel record says that the, the elders and the scribes are there. They're waiting. Jesus is taken from Annas' house over to Caiaphas' house. Son-in-law is next to father-in-law. And there's a court in between. So they don't have to travel very far from Annas' house to Caiaphas' house. Amen. Watch. Watch. You realize that this is still at night against the law. The court is there. I don't know if all 71, the whole great Sanhedrin is there, or if it's just the preliminary five and the 12 or what. I don't know. It doesn't tell you all those details. 
But we do know it's take, that Jesus has taken two Caiaphas from Annas to at least some form of a Sanhedrin, either the great Sanhedrin, 71, or the lesser Sanhedrin of 24, or 12, or 11. We're not sure. It doesn't tell us. It just says elders and scribes. So we know they have already got together, Jared, and they're waiting for Jesus to come. Now I guarantee you when they took him to Annas, Annas wasn't asleep. When they first delivered him to Annas, Annas was waiting for him. Amen. Caiaphas was waiting for him. They were in part of sending out the group to get him. So here they are. Caiaphas, the high priest, and the elders of Israel and the scribes. That's what the other gospel writer says. Now, this is the second trial within the one trial. The trial of the Jews or the religion. Second trial. Are y'all here? I'll give it to you now because it doesn't give it to you in John, but in Luke it says there's a third trial of these same people with Caiaphas, but it's in the morning. See, they're trying to make it legal. Right? Okay. So after this trial, there's going to be another trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin in the morning. Not at night. Are you with me so far? I'm going to do my best to fill in the gaps here just a little bit. Okay, there's a look. And we'll go back to Peter in just a minute. Okay, praise the Lord. Okay, praise the Lord. Now, John doesn't tell you what happens before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin at the nighttime, that second trial within the first trial. But the other writers do. They interrogate Jesus. They get the confession from Him that He is God. And that he is the Messiah. Are y'all here? And in the no, are y'all still with me? Okay, I don't want to lose you because I'm jumping from place to place. Annas, Caiaphas at night with the Sanhedrin. That's where I am right now. At that point with Caiaphas, they have gone out and solicited false witnesses against Jesus. And none of them can agree. But they talk about what Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. They go way back to John chapter 2, about three years earlier when Jesus said that, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. To accuse Jesus, Jesus is trying to overthrow the temple and the religion of the Jews, okay? When he wasn't even talking about the physical temple, he was talking about his body and raising up his body by his death, which is you. But they misinterpreted what he was saying to me that he would just, that he was going to destroy the temple, okay, and then supernaturally raise it up again. They misinterpreted it. And then they didn't even get the wording exactly right. They had a couple of witnesses, but neither one of them agreed. 
Okay, so you're with me? Get that behind you. But there's no witnesses on his behalf there. Only false witnesses. You have to read the other Gospels to get it now. So, they begin to talk to Jesus. Ask him questions. Yeah. Jesus said, you're going to see the Son of Man on the right hands of the power of God coming in the clouds of glory. Read Matthew 26. The high priest rips his clothes. He breaks the law. Leviticus says it's against the law for the high priest to rent his garments. He tears his garments. We don't need anything else. We've heard enough ourselves. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He's committing blasphemy. He said, that's all we need to know. He's committing blasphemy. And they condemn him to death for blasphemy. It's not recorded in John. You have to read it in Matthew. Okay, read it in Matthew 26. Right? So, the next morning, when daylight, Luke says, when the daylight comes up, Caiaphas and the court comes together again. What are they trying to do? Make illegal. So they meet in the daytime and they accuse him of blasphemy and say he is worthy of death and they smite him and they spit on him and even the high priest spits on him. Which brings me to the next part. And from there, with the charge of blasphemy, which is a false charge, because He is God. And because He is the Messiah, it is not blasphemy. If you say you're God, and if you say you're the Messiah, that's blasphemy. Worthy of death. But because He is God and because He is Messiah, there is no blasphemy. So the charge, and everything, and listen, as far as I know, nothing's recorded here. It's, it's just a trumped up charge, blasphemy, right? Claim to be God and the Messiah. But they know that will not stand up in Roman, a Roman court. But they also know they can't kill Jesus for blasphemy without the Roman government's approval. Capital punishment, they can pass a verdict of guilty and pass a verdict that he's worthy of death, but they can't execute the sentence. It's against the law. The Roman government made it against the law years before this trial. Think about that. God took it out of the hands of the Jews before the trial ever happened in setting a law up that would keep the Jews from stoning him to death. Because that was the way they executed the death penalty for Jews. But Jesus has been telling them he's going to be crucified and rise again the third day. You understand? 
They know. Blasphemy, that doesn't mean nothing to Pilate and the Roman government. They have a pantheon of gods. They have a god for everything. Blasphemy? Making yourself equal with God? They have a god for everything. It's nothing to them. Okay. But insurrection, trying to overthrow the Roman government, not paying your taxes, those are serious things to the Roman government. So they've got this charge of blasphemy, and they say he's worthy of death. They've broken every law that they possibly could in the trying of Jesus. It's corrupt. It's conspiracy. It was a plot. It was predetermined beforehand. They were waiting for him when he got there. They knew exactly what they were trying to do. You understand? So now the Bible says, and I'm in John again, verse 24, Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. Okay, now we're going back to Simon Peter again. Strength of Jesus. And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. They said, Therefore, unto him art thou not also one of the disciples? He denied him and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, whose Peter cut off, saith, Did not I say, See thee in the garden with thee? Peter denied again, and immediately the cock crew. I've already covered that for you. One of the kinsmen of Malchus, you know, was there in the garden when he saw it. Peter cut Malchus earlobe off, and he, he comes up. Oh, you know Peter's feeling the pressure now. When when Mal, one of Malchus's family members said, "I was there. I saw you there." Peter denies it outright. Amen. Back to Jesus, twenty-eight. Then led they Jesus from Caius unto the hall of judgment. And it was early. And they themselves went not into the judgment hall. This is Pilate's judgment hall. Jesus has already gone through three trials by religion. One trial of religion, three parts. Okay? Three trials of religion. Now, a fourth trial, they take him to the judgment hall of Pilate. Pilate would normally not be in Jerusalem. But because it's Passover and there's so many people in the Passover, he's concerned about an uprising. So he's there along with a bunch of soldiers to keep that down. Okay, you with me? And they bring Jesus. It's early in the morning. Having already gone through that third trial that Luke talked about. Okay. Now watch. When they get to that judgment hall of Pilate, they would not go in. You know why? Because it's Passover. To go into the, the judgment hall of Pilate, they would defile themselves. What hypocrites. Amen? Praise the Lord. They haven't eaten the Passover yet. 
And, and, and so they, they, they can't go in there. They defile themselves. Now, well, Jesus already ate the Passover. How could that be? That Jesus had a lamb slain. He already ate it. You understand? The evening before. You know? How could that be? Because the Galileans observed their day from sunrise to sunrise. The Judean Jews observed their day from sunset to sunset. That's why Jesus, being a Galilean, had already eaten the Passover. So he ate the Passover lamb in fulfillment. He is the Passover lamb. He's fulfilling the Passover there, and he institutes the Lord's Supper. And then on the next day, the Judean Jews are going to kill the Passover lamb at the same time he dies. So they don't want to go in there to Pilate's judgment hall because they would be defiled. I mean, I believe the whole court went over there to Pilate's house, judgment hall. Every one of them. Caiaphas, Annas, all of them. Okay. Did you catch it? Did you catch it? So it says, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring you against this man? Now at this point, he's operating according to Roman jurisprudence. What's the charge? Pilate, you need to understand something about Pilate. Pilate is anti-Semitic. He hates the Jews, man. Okay? And when they show up with Jesus, the tone of his voice, not a human. Because in case you don't know it, they had already brought, prior to bringing Jesus, multiple times, people who came to be the king of the Jews. And he had already scourged, Pilate had already scourged many of them before Jesus, who claimed to be the king of the Jews. And now, here you come again. All right, what charge are you bringing against him? What's the charge? Understand? Proper procedure at this point. Now, I want you to understand, he's an anti-Semitic, he's Roman to the core. He's not, listen, when we read about Pilate here, he looks like a pushover. When we read about Pilate in the Gospels, he looks like a weak, vacillating governor. The only reason why he appears that way in the Gospels is because Rome has him under investigation. And I don't have time to tell you, but you can study Josephus and you can find out all kinds of crazy things that, that Pilate did. You think Pilate cared about what the Jews thought? I'll give you one example. He had men walk into Jerusalem with the emblem of the Roman Empire on the banner, lifted high. Images. And it caused an uprising in Jerusalem. He didn't care what the Jews thought. He put a shield out there in public that, that made Caesar God. And the Jews uh, protested it, you know. And one thing, he didn't care about what the Jews thought. He wasn't a weak pushover. This man was a slave that came up through the ranks. He was a, a military soldier 
before he ever became a governor. He was ruthless. He was cruel. He was a murderer. He was a Jew hater. Okay? He wasn't a man you could push around. He didn't care what the Jews thought. The only reason why he's vacillating in the Gospels, as I said, is because Rome is investigating him. He can't afford to blow it. He's going to lose his position if he does. So you need to get the truth about Pilate historically. So, what is the accusation you bring against this man? Proper legal procedure. You understand? Now at this point, it's early in the morning. Right before Passover. Right before the lambs are going to be slain at 12 o'clock. Okay? They brought him early in the morning from Caiaphas' house to Pilate's judgment hall. Pilate asked the question, what's the charge? Verse 30, they answered and said unto him, if he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. You catch that? They know if they say he's a blasphemer, that's not going to do anything. But they say, you know, he's claimed to be God. He's claimed to be the Messiah. That doesn't mean anything to the Romans. That, that's not worthy of death in the Romans' mind, in Pilate's mind. So they just say, it's good enough that we have brought him here to you today. We wouldn't have brought him to you if he wasn't an evil man. So we're asking you to sentence him to death without any charge. We're asking, they were asking Pilate to sentence him to death, no charge. Just, just know, they're saying, just know, we wouldn't have brought him in here if he wasn't guilty. We don't have a charge. They don't want a trial. They just want Jesus dead. So they don't even present a trial. Are you hearing me? When that happens, Pilate should have looked at the whole bunch and said, get out of my face. But he doesn't. Because he's intimidated at that point by the Sanhedrin because he's under investigation by Rome. The way he's handling Jerusalem. So they're basically saying, killing without a charge. Verse 31. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. Pilate just gave them the nod. He says, You understand what he just did? Pilate just gave them the permission to go stone Jesus. He gave them the nod. Go ahead. Do what you need to do. You judge him according to your law. Right? He's basically saying, you know, uh, he deserved death, kill him, stone him. You go stone him, you do it. Do you understand what I'm telling you? They could not do it without permission from the Roman government. And so he's given them the nod to stone Jesus. Now I want you to listen to that. You understand? All right, you go, you try him again, right? You fulfill your desires upon you. That's 
what Pilate is doing here. Okay, watch this. They say, well, it's not lawful for us to put any man to death. And, and that what they're saying is true, but Pilate just got to giving them the nod, giving them the nod to do with him what they wanted to do. He's afraid of the Jews, the leaders. Okay? <clears throat> say amen. Verse 32. How do I know that he was giving them the nod to stone Jesus? Because of the next verse. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. And it wouldn't be by stoning, it would be by crucifixion. You see that? Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And if you take the time and go through the Gospels, you will see that Pilate goes in and out seven times. He goes three times into the judgment hall. He goes out a total of four times for seven times. God has given this man complete opportunity to be saved. Number seven is number of completion. Pilate went in and out seven times. They brought Jesus before Pilate. They won't go in because they don't want to be defiled. So Jesus gets uh, Pilate gets Jesus and carries Jesus by himself into the judgment hall. Okay, and he begins to talk to Jesus one on one, face to face, man to man. Then Pilate entered the judgment hall again and called Jesus, said unto him, Art thou the King of the Jews? Did you catch that? See, in the other Gospels, they had accused Jesus of not paying taxes to Caesar. Okay? They were accusing Jesus of insurrection, trying to overthrow the Roman government. Alright? Pilate knew what they were. They didn't bring the charge. They charged him with blasphemy. They changed the charge when they brought him to Pilate. Do you hear what I'm saying? They changed the charge, brother. You understand? Like you go to court, they charge you with something, then they take you to another court and they change the charge to get the favor of that court. They say Jesus didn't pay his taxes. Jesus had already said, render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and the things that belong to God to God. They lied on him. Jesus already told Peter to go fishing. He got a fish. He got a coin out of the fish's mouth so he could pay the tax. They lied on him. Jesus paid his taxes. He wasn't trying to overthrow the Roman government and set up a counter-government to that. He wasn't trying to tell people don't pay your taxes. It was a lie. We pick it up and we hear Pilate questioning, are you the king of the Jews? See? Jesus says, are you asking for yourself? Or did you come to that conclusion on your own? Or did somebody tell you that? Don't mess with Jesus. I love him, I love him, I love him. Jesus said, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Are you just repeating something that somebody else told you? Or is this the conclusion you came to on your own? Is this what you think? 
because it's what somebody else told you. That's the way people are in the world. They don't, they've heard all kinds of things about this church and never even been into this church. They're just like Pilate. Say things about this. You, you say things about Pentecost and Pentecostal people and you've never experienced Pentecost or don't know anything about Pentecostal people? Are you saying it because somebody told you that? Or is this something you know on your own? You come across that from time to time. Somebody says something, something against Pentecost, against your, your church or Pentecostal movement. You say, did you come to that on your own or did somebody tell you that? Are you just repeating what you heard somebody else say, stupid? That's my human weakness. Jesus. Answered saying, Thou this thing. Just answer him. Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me, that I'm the king of the Jews? Did somebody else tell you that I'm the king of the Jews? Or is this what you're saying? Is this your opinion? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? No, but you're still responsible. You're still accountable. Jesus. Pilate answered, Am I Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? They haven't brought a formal charge against you. Unheard of for a Roman governor to ask the accused, What'd you do, man? Unheard of. You know what? He, he's, he knows those people standing out there are full of it. He knows they're lying. He knows it's trumped up, man. Come on. You know, come on, man. Tell me what you did. I know those stupid idiots out there. They don't know anything. He didn't believe for one minute that anything, that Jesus had done anything wrong. It's a bunch of religious people. Corrupt evil. This is all in Pilate's judgment hall. He's talking to Jesus by himself. In your own nation, chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered. Oh, here we go. My kingdom is not of this world. Oh, oh, oh. I think that Pilate was already, he was real nervous. <laughs> if you could make this kind of man nervous, I think he was really nervous. I think he could sense that something just wasn't 
normal here. Looking at this this man in relationship to the other ones that claim to be king that they brought before. There's something different about this man. I think he was really, really nervous at this point. And when Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. What are you talking about? Not of this world. What's up? Something's up here. Okay. What Jesus is saying is, I'm not trying to overthrow the Roman government. I'm not involved in sedition or insurrection. It's a lie. Okay, you understand? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. They would fight right now and keep me from being delivered into the hands of the Jews. And the word servants are powerful term. He's talking about leaders in his kingdom. He said, I got some officials in my kingdom. He said, if my kingdom was of this world, he said, they'd be fighting right now. So I wouldn't be delivered into the hands of the Jews. So my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of the world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. You know, you sort of get the feeling like Jesus is in control the whole time. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? See, Jesus didn't answer him directly and say, I'm a king. He just said, My kingdom is not in this world. Right? My kingdom is in this world. My servants would fight. They ought not be delivered to the Jews. He never did say, I'm a king. I'm a king, did he? So Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Now, he'll, now Jesus did. Yes. Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. It's, it's a statement. Yeah, I am a king. What you're saying is true. I am a king. He's saying, I am a king. But he's not a king trying to usurp the Roman government or, or overthrow Caesar's rule. You understand? It's not a, a political conspiracy. It's not a revolution. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. He said, you want to know what my kingdom about? He said, I rule over the realm of truth. That's the realm that Jesus rules over, is the realm of truth. And those that hear his voice, or a part of his kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. And the realm of his rule is truth. Pilate says, what is true? What is true? What is true? Just tell me something right now that I can get out of this mess. What is the truth so I can get out of this mess? That's all that's on Pilate's mind. What is truth to further his agenda? to further his political aspirations, to keep himself out of trouble. That's all he's concerned about right now. That's it. What is truth? You think, Pilate, Brother Patrick, when Pilate looked at Jesus and said, what is truth, that he was sincere? If he was sincere about wanting to know the truth, the truth is standing right in front of him. If he really wanted to know the truth, 
He could have said, tell me the truth. I want to know the truth. The truth is standing right in front of him. Hallelujah to the Lamb. What is truth? There's so many lies going on in that corrupt government and the Jewish religion. Lies everywhere, man. What is truth? He didn't want to know it. He didn't want to know it. He just wanted to get off the hook. I'm almost done. You wait, hang with me a little longer. All this going on in the judgment hall in Pilate and Jesus. Pilate said unto what is true. And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. Goes back out. Not guilty. I find no fault in him. Not guilty. He should have released him and set him free instantly. But you know what he ends up doing? He ends up sending to Herod, a lesser official over Galilee. And when he goes, Herod is the the fifth trial. This is the fourth, Pilate. Herod is the fifth. And when Jesus shows up, Herod, Herod's in a funny mood. He's not in a mood to pass judgment. He's in a mood for entertainment. It's the Herod, it's Herod Antipas. It's the same Herod that beheaded John the Baptist. And when he gets there, he said, yeah, I've heard about this Jesus. I said, I, I've heard about some things, you know, miracles he's done. I want to see him work a miracle for me. He wanted an entertainment. He wanted to show Jesus wouldn't even talk to the man. And Herod sends him back to Pilate. Herod had no judgment. Which basically means if he has no judgment in a lesser court, no judgment, then the higher court, there's no judgment by the lower court, let him go free. Herod sends you back to Pilate, say amen, which is the third of the second trial under the Romans. It's not recorded in John. Are y'all with me? Pilate's still trying to find. Okay, not guilty, right? He's innocent, not guilty. Of the charge of insurrection, not paying taxes, etc of trying to usurp the Roman government and set up his own kingdom. But ye have a custom. So now Pilate, all right, you see what he's doing? He's just back and forth. He should have stood up and said, you are free, go. But he's intimidated by the Sanhedrin. He's under investigation. He don't want any trouble. He's concerned about his position. More than what is right. But he's a, I'm telling you, he's not a dummy. Don't you think Pilate's dumb? He is not a dummy. He gets this idea. He says, in the Passover celebration, it is a custom for the Roman government to release a Jew that's incarcerated. Let him go free. 
face. Man, I got a really evil man in prison. He's a murderer. He's a robber. He's an insurrectionist. He's the one that should be hanging on Jesus' cross. He's a notable prisoner. His name is Barabbas. Bar, son, Abbas. Some translations, Rabban. Bar Rabban, the son of a priest. So that he was notable before he ever murdered or ever robbed anybody. It is possible that this Barabbas was the son of a priest. Barabbas means son. It's Aramaic, which is close to Hebrew. Means Bar, son. Remember Simon, Bar, Jonah? Simon, son of Jonah? Barabbas, Bar, son of Abba. Father, son of the Father. His name is the son of the Father. But here's what's interesting. In the early writings of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew recorded, now isn't that, wouldn't that be strange? You read in here that this man's name is Barabbas, verse 40, and that's not even a name. Barabbas means the son of the Father. That's not a name. Early the early writing, early gospel writing of Matthew recorded his name. And his name was Jesus. Jesus Barabbas. Jesus, the son of the father. Jesus, this one. Barabbas, the son of the devil. Not the son of God. In contrast to Jesus, the Christ. Jesus, the true Son of the Father. In contrast to Jesus, Barabbas, Jesus, the Son of the Devil. The one that is without God. In contrast to the one who is God. And later in history, when they wrote the Gospel of Matthew, they left his name out. The scribes did. Because they did not want his name to be brought up in the same sentence as Jesus the Christ. So that Jesus Barabbas, we have the name. That's not uncommon. But Jesus the Christ. Now you gotta understand something. That when this whole process and this whole trial is going on, and Pilate comes up with the thought of releasing a prisoner, and he thinks of Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas. You need to realize that not too far from where the trial was being held at Pilate Judgment Hall was where Jesus Barabbas was incarcerated. So that G Jesus Barabbas heard the whole trial. He knows he's supposed to die that day. He knows he's supposed to be crucified on the cross that day. He's already been charged with crime. And all of a sudden, he heard the footfall of a soldier standing and the door comes swinging open. Where are we going? The Jews have requested Jesus Barabbas to be released. He went free and Jesus took his cross. Jesus literally took his place. More than any other man in history, Jesus literally took the place of that man. That man deserved to be on the cross that Jesus, he was already convicted. 
And when he went free that day, he saw Jesus take his place. No man in history could say that Jesus took his place like Jesus Barabbas. So do you much you have a custom I should release unto you one at the Passover? Will you therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but it was a rabbis. Now the rabbis was a robber. He was more than a robber. He murdered an insurrectionist. Amen. There he goes free. Jesus stands condemned. See, Pilate, it's not going Pilate. He's not having a very good day. He, would, he was thinking that they would say, let Jesus the Christ go. They say, Jesus Barabbas. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. Broke the law. Illegal. He had already said, I find no fault in him. For him to take him and scourge him, he's breaking the law. But he's trying to appease the Jewish leaders. Sure, if I take this man and scourge him like I've done other would-be kings of Israel, that they would let him go. They would show pity. So he scourges him. Now, I want to share something with you. You need to understand that this is a Roman scourge. This is not a Jewish scourge. Jewish scourge had limitation. Forty stripes. So they would always, when they were scourging somebody, they would hit them 39 times and stop in case they miscounted. They never, they, it was against the law for them to hit a man over 40 times. So they set the limitation at 40 but stopped at 39. That's a Jewish scourge. This is not a Jewish scourge. This is a Roman scourge. There are no limitations. The flagellum that's used by them has anywhere from 10 to 30 thongs on it. A handle with 10 to 30 thongs on it with ball, metal balls and metal chips and sharp bone and pottery, broken pottery interwoven into each one of those thongs. And when the Romans scourged you, there was no limitation. So 10 to 30 thongs, if it's, it's, if it's the flagellum, it's 10 to 30. If it's the flagrum, it's 30, the ultimate number. And they would take this, the victim they were in scourge and they would pull his hands up over his head and lift him up on a stake until his legs were, were dangling so that his back would be stretched. A very strong Roman soldier, in some cases up to four Roman soldiers, would be, begin to take the flagellum or the flagrum whichever one it was, and they, the Romans, would hit them a hundred times and possibly up to two hundred times. Do the math. If it's a hundred times and it's thirty thongs, that, do the math. How many, how many? 
hundred times times thirty. Three thousand. Huh? No, a hundred times thirty. Three thousand. Up to two hundred times. Six thousand. No limitation. That pull him up, stretch him out. And up to four of them would begin to whip him in the back. If they didn't pull him up on the stake and suspend him off the ground, they would put him over a stone or a stump and chain his hands to his feet so he couldn't move. And they would begin to whip him. And if he passed out, they would wake him up and they would whip him some more on his shoulders, on his back, on his buttocks, around his sides, into his face, until you could see the skeletal parts and the inward organs of his So this was the brutality. And if the man was going to be crucified on a cross, they, as soon as they got through whooping him, they threw salt rock on his back or bathed him in salt water, an excruciating pain to slow the blood flow that was coming out of his back so that he would live long enough to be crucified on the cross. So when they whipped Jesus, this was a Roman stage. It wasn't limited to 39 stripes. If you multiply it out, it could have been up to 3,000 stripes placed on the back of Jesus Christ. He, did. he didn't have to do that, but he did it just for you and me. And then... Peter takes it and Isaiah prophesied about it. By his stripes we were healed. So when we pray for the sick for the stripe that was placed on his back, you'll hear us pray by your stripes Lord, in Jesus' name. He provided healing and the atonement. Not just salvation from sin, but healing and the atonement. They beat them so unmercifully that oftentimes those that were scourged did not survive the scourging. They died of the scourge. And that wasn't enough. After he was scourged, the Bible says the soldiers planted a corn of a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they put on him a purple robe. And they would begin to hit him. And they drive those two-inch thorns that are located in Jerusalem into the brow of his head. So the blood would flow down his brow. And they put a purple robe on him. And they mocked him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, the 
goes out by himself, and then Jesus follows Pilate. And he stands there to gather the came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe and Pilate saith unto him behold the man that is to say is this enough is this enough if you look at Isaiah chapter 50 and Isaiah 52 and I'll read you the text In Isaiah chapter 50, the Bible says there, in verse 6, he says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheek to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from the shame and spitting. In chapter 52, in verse 13, Behold, my servant shall do prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high as many were astonished at thee. His visage was so marred more than any man and his own more than the sons of men. When they got through with Jesus, you couldn't even recognize that he was a man. His flesh had been ribboned They hung him on the cross. I don't believe there was any part of his body that you could see. There was not an open wound. Those stripes that hit the back of his legs and around his sides, up on his face. There's never been a man that has suffered like Jesus did. He was unrecognizable. These stories that you see, the passion of the Christ, as much as they tried to depict the reality of it, didn't they, they did not touch it. Now, though, that when we saw that, I couldn't do anything but sit there and cry. Just what I saw. But what I saw depicted in film does not even touch what he went through that day. And the pictures that you see of him hanging on the cross, where he looks like a man, he didn't even look like a man. So when Pilate brings him out, he says, Behold the man and said, Basically, surely this is enough. When the chief priests, therefore, and the officers saw him, they cried out, say, uh, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Blood thirsty. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him. You take him and crucify him. I find no fault with him. Then let him go, Pilate. Do you find no fault with him? He's an innocent man. Let him go. You go crucify him. Matthew 26. His wife has a dream after midnight that same day 
The Bible doesn't tell us what she dreamed. It doesn't tell us the details. But God sent Pilate's wife a dream that day. I don't know if God showed her Pilate standing before Jesus at the great white throne judgment. I don't know what she saw in that dream. But God sent her a dream at just the right time. She woke up at just the right time. She looked at one of the servants at just the right time and said, run and tell Pilate to have nothing to do with that just man. And while Pilate is in the process, this messenger comes forward and says, have nothing to do with that just man. And I believe when he said it, it wasn't just Pilate that heard that voice. I believe every one of those people heard that voice have nothing to do with that just man. You will stand before him someday at the great white throne judgment, Pilate. Pilate is scared to death. The Jews answered him, now, watch what they say. We have a law, and by our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. And the Bible says, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid. He's been afraid through the whole process. And now he's more afraid. He's got his wife telling him that she's had a dream that same day. And in the Roman mind, if you have a dream after 12 midnight, it's guaranteed to come to pass. She knew it. He got all of this. And now the Jews are telling him that this man claims to be the Son of God. Pilate doesn't know anything about the one God of the Bible. He doesn't know about the Messiah, the Christ of God. He's had encounters with people who claim to be the Savior. The Son of God in his mind, he's thinking about Jupiter. He's thinking about all these, this pantheon of gods. And, and they're saying that this one that is standing here right now is a son. In his mind, he's thinking of Jupiter. He knows as a Roman. He's an idolater. But he knows you don't miss with the gods. And if this is the son of Jupiter, he's in big trouble. He is. Now, you need to understand something here. You are talking about a hardened Roman governor. Okay. For him to be afraid saying and went again into the judgment hall and saith unto Jesus whence art thou where did you come from they, they were, they're saying you're the son of God where did you come from
that Jesus gave him. No answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me, knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Caiaphas, Annas, Judas, they have the greater sin. The only authority, Jesus said, the only authority you have is, is authority that is given to you. Given to you by God. He's saying to Pilate, if it wasn't God's will for you to be here today, you wouldn't be here. If it wasn't for God's will, you wouldn't be the governor of Judah under Tiberius Caesar. You still get to feed him even after they beat him unmercifully. But he's still in control. Look at them. He's not, he's not feeling sorry for himself. He's not defending himself. Majestic humility. Jesus. I guarantee you, Pilate had never seen anybody like this before. He had seen them scream and cry like babies and beg for their lives. And he'd never seen anybody like Jesus. From thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. He just kept trying to find ways to release him. Well, why don't you, Pilate? Because position is more important to him than righteousness. He's more concerned about losing his job than he is being right with God. Peer pressure. He's got it on him, man. He feels the pressure, the Jesus. The pressure, the peer pressure. That's why he won't give him peer pressure. Or he's going to lose his job. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. Now, they have blackmailed Pilate to the ultimate degree. Whosoever make themselves a king, speak it against Caesar. As far as Pilate is concerned, Caesar is the only king, he's the only God. He's, he's really a God in his mind. Deified. Caesar is. And when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and set him down in the judgment and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. This is interesting. He brings Jesus out. Is it Pilate sitting in the judgment seat? Or is it Jesus sitting in the judgment seat? Pilate's judgment hall has a judgment seat. Out there in the outer court, there's what's called the Gabbatha, which means the mosaic or a stone 
where Roman soldiers played games like tic-tac-toe while they were watching and guarding prisoners. And so now Jesus is taken out from the judgment hall of Pilate and he's taken out there to that Bema seat located there at the Gabbatha. My question is, did Pilate sit down to give the final judgment? Or did he put Jesus in the judgment seat to mock him? You think about that. The text is not clear as to whether it was Pilate sitting in the judgment seat or he put Jesus in the judgment seat as a mockery. But I want to tell you something. If it's Jesus sitting in that judgment seat, even though he was mocking him, he got it right because he is the judge of Israel. And the next time you see him, you will not see him sitting like that, eating like that. You will see him sitting on the great white throne of judgment. And the Bible says, and it was a preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour, and he saith unto the Jews, Behold, your king! Look at him sitting there. I believe it was Jesus sitting there. Behold, your king! Look at him sitting there. Behold the man. Behold the king. I want you to see something here. It says, and it was the preparation of the Passover at about the sixth hour. And he said, unto the Jews, behold your king. The sixth hour. Sixth hour was noon. The sixth hour was 12 o'clock noon. I thought he was crucified at nine in the morning. Mark says he was in Mark 15. He said he was led to be crucified at it was nine a.m. John says it's the sixth hour. You understand that for Jesus to go through in the in the night, early morning. To Annas, to Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin, and then in the morning back to Annas and the Sanhedrin again early morning. And then for him to go to Pilate, and Pilate go in and out seven times, and for Pilate to scourge him, and for Pilate to go through all of that trial that he went through. Does it make sense to you that Jesus could have been crucified at nine in the morning? Mark says it was nine, it was the third hour of the day. The third hour of the day. John says it's the sixth hour of the day and Jesus hasn't even gone to the cross yet. When I saw that last night, I'm going, Lord, help me understand. I don't understand because Mark said third hour of the day and now we have the sixth hour of the day. That's mid, that's well noon. I'll begin to study it. If it's the sixth hour, it's 12 noon. That makes sense. It gives you more time for all of these events that have taken place. If it's 12 o'clock, that makes sense because Exodus chapter 12 tells us that the Passover lamb has to be slain between evening and evening. 
What that means is this, that the Passover has to be slain, and they interpreted that later in history to mean after 12 o'clock, the declining of the sun, as the sun began to decline, that's when the Passover lambs will begin to be slaughtered at 12 o'clock. And so at the very time that Jesus is going to be crucified, the sixth hour of the day, 12 o'clock, that's when the Passover lambs are being slaughtered there at the temple. So it made sense to me if we go by John that Jesus only hung on the cross from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock. Three hours. And in that three hours, the Bible says the sun was dark. It was darkened. All the other, all the gospels talk about a three hour time frame where the sun refused to shine. It is as if God turned his head and couldn't bear to see. Three hours of darkness. And how do you explain Mark 15 where the Bible says the third hour? It could be that he was making reference to the third hour, which was a time period of 9 to 12 o'clock. A time period. It could be that the sixth hour here is Roman time, starting from 12 o'clock at night to 6 o'clock in the morning. To me, it's unlikely. It's possible, but it's unlikely. I believe, it's my opinion, that it was, I'm not saying one way or the other, but according to the Gospel of John, it's at 12 o'clock, midday, with the crying of the sun, the time the Passover lambs would be slain, that he was sent to the cross. I can't explain that. Why he said the third hour of the day unless it be that time period from 9 to 12. He's talking about a time period. There's just some things in the scripture. When you look at it, it's a puzzle. It's, it's a mystery. But when I saw that sixth hour of the day, I'm going, whoa. It sent me on a journey. It made sense with all the events that were happening. And it lined up with timeology of Exodus 12. And it lined up with the very time that the Passover lamb would be slain, that he would die. That same time. And those Passover lambs were not slain in the morning. They were slain at 12 o'clock. I'm not asking you to believe me, I'm just asking you to hear it. I'm trying to find a way to understand the Bible. Verse 14, there was a preparation of the Passover. It's time where they could start killing the Passover lambs. And about the sixth hour, he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, Ye have no king but Caesar. What blasphemy? They had always said in the past, we have only one king, and that's Yahweh. 
Only one king, and that's God. And now they say, we have no king but Caesar. They bowed their necks to Caesar to murder Jesus. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. They took Jesus and led him away. They cleared the streets. Twelve o'clock. Midday. They cleared the streets so that only those that were living in the houses along the streets and those that were in rental places could see it. And they marched him. And I will talk about it next week, Lord willing, with an entourage of a certain number of men. And they took him to the Valley of Gehenna. And they crucified him in the Valley of Gehenna, the place of execution. Let's go back to Peter. Peter felt like he had committed the unpardonable sin. He felt like he was ir irreconcilable to a relationship with Jesus ever again. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ takes place. And he hears about the resurrection, but there's this still this cloud over him. I denied him three times. Jesus looks at the women, tells them, go tell my disciples and tell Peter also. Peter was restored by Jesus. Peter was forgiven. Do you know why? Because Peter, the Bible says after he denied him and he cursed so vehemently, brought that curse upon his head, the Bible says when he did that, Jesus, and I'm backing up in time, when Jesus was being tried at the high priest's house, Jesus looks through the window and he sees Peter standing in the court. And the Bible says, Jesus looked at Peter. And the word means he looked at him with a long, long look, with a long gaze. I told you so. That long stare at Jesus looked at Peter wasn't a stare of condemnation. The Bible says Peter went out and he wept bitterly. Peter repented of his denial. He wept bitterly. And he was restored. And he preached on the day of Pentecost. And Peter never denied Jesus Christ ever, ever, ever again. He could stand up in the most hostile environments. And preach the truth. Never to deny him again. And in the early church there was a legend. And I'm letting you go. In the early church there was a legend. That every time that Peter heard the cock crow. He would stop crying. Because he remembered how he denied his Lord. He never forgot it. He never denied it ever again. The strength of Jesus in contrast to the weakness of Peter. But Peter repented. And God used him to preach on the day of Pentecost. 
and to see multitudes of people coming as, into the kingdom, being filled with the Holy Ghost, baptized in Jesus' name. But, but what about Judas? Well, Judas had already said, I've only lost one. He didn't lose Peter. He only lost Judas. Here's the difference. People will say, well, the Bible says that Judas repented. The word repent that Judas repented is not the same word that's normally used for repent. It's not like he repented of his sin. When it says Judas repented, all it means is he had deep regret. But Peter didn't just have deep regret. Peter loved Jesus. When you really love someone, you really love them. And even though he was weak, he kept on following Jesus. Amen. Amen. And all it took was just to look at look from the Lord. And and Peter went out and went bitterly. Thank God for the grace of God. Thank God. I don't know, maybe that maybe some of you in your in your mind you committed the sin and you denied him. But do you love him? If you really, really love him. If you will repent, he'll forgive you and restore you and use you in the kingdom. If he did it for Peter, he can do for us. What an awesome Savior He is. Let's stand. Lord, we love You tonight and we give You praise and glory and honor. Oh, God. Lord, tonight we're standing on holy ground. We thank You. you you're not asking for us to show pity or to have pity. You are asking us to appreciate what you've done for us. You've asked us to repent of that sin and put it under the blood. The only thing right now that is hindering man, sin, Jesus died for sin. The only thing that is hindering man from coming to God is his unbelief. Tonight, do you believe in him? If you do, lift your hands and thank you for what he's done for you. As far as what happened to him, it was cruel. It was evil. But God took it and brought the salvation of our souls. Would you lift your hands and just love Him right now? You can never repay Him for what He's done for you. I cannot repay Him. Hallelujah. 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 Jesus, I praise your name. Thank God, thank God, thank God. That's why you're healed in your body. That's why your sins have been remitted. That's why you're forgiven tonight. That's the only reason why you could go to heaven. is because He took your place. You are not worthy, and I am not worthy. But He made us worthy. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God.
Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, mighty God. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Father God, I just ask your blessing to be upon this congregation as we leave from this house tonight. We thank you for enabling us to see what you've done. We give you praise and glory and we call you Savior. We call you God. We say thank you, Lord. Everybody said in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Amen. Give, your, give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Amen.